If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 614. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audio book of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Purchase one or 20 of my classes there. It's how you keep this podcast free of charge. Also, you get a free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you sign up. You can also click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Throw a few pennies my way. You can click on the shop tab there. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share it around on social media. Send me those show requests. Do all you can to get people interested in the show. And I like those show requests, and I like to make my listeners happy. And I've got a, a great listener, Michael Bolden of the Tenth Amendment Center. He says he listens to the show all the time. And I know he does because he mentions things that I say. So he asked on a webinar the other night, why is it? And he, I mean, I wrote this down because I said, okay, I'll do this for him. Since he graciously did that webinar, I figured I'd dedicate a podcast episode to Michael Bolden's question. Why is it that George Washington didn't side with other Virginians like Patrick Henry or Thomas Jefferson or James Madison or any of the others? I mean, you can look at the decentralists, John Taylor of Caroline, St. George. Why, why was Washington much more of a nationalist than these people? Now, there were other Virginians. There was John Marshall as Virginia, who was a nationalist. And of course, remember that James Madison was a nationalist when he went to Philadelphia in the spring of 1787 and came away Disillusioned, but of course, he defended the Constitution that they got out of the convention. But the real question is, why didn't Washington side with the very Jeffersonian, decentralist view of the United States government? I also must note, and I'll say this about Patrick Henry, Patrick Henry is great up to about the time you get to the 1780, late 1780s, just before he dies. And that's because Patrick Henry, into the 1790s, became a, a pretty strong, staunch nationalist. Now, what I mean by that is he, Patrick Henry thought that the Jeffersonians were dangerous. He didn't like Thomas Jefferson. He didn't like James Madison. But he particularly didn't like Thomas Jefferson. And, uh, he, and again, Madison was always suspicious of Patrick Henry. It's why Madison wanted the Constitution in the first place. So Henry argues against the Constitution as a national instrument. But when they get it, and it becomes everything he said it would be, Madison and Jefferson start saying, well, I mean, this isn't what it means. Well, Henry's position was, I told you so. And so because this is what we get, I'm going to go for it. And Henry was always worried about revolutionaries. He was a very conservative individual. He's worried about French revolutionaries running around the Virginia countryside and lopping off heads. So was John Marshall. And I think ultimately, so was George Washington. You cannot divorce what they thought about American society at that particular time period for what was going on in world politics. They were sincerely concerned 
about a French revolutionary-style revolution in the United States. And you see, while they didn't have a monarchy, they certainly had a very conservative government. The founding generation always talked about being suspicious of democracy. That was something that they were well understood could be a problem for the United States. So in their mind, the Republicans represented the worst of the revolutionary impulse. Meaning that if we had that kind of thing here, this rights of man and, uh, and this uh, very you know, grand statement of uh, liberty, equality, fraternity, all of that, we would get some really nasty stuff here. Hamilton, of course, was interested in this too. It's why I think he was so suspicious of American democracy as well. Now, this is before the French Revolution, but even after that begins, Hamilton is, you know, he's not in, on board with this stuff. Remember, Washington and Tom Paine didn't see eye to eye. Tom Paine started really ripping George Washington, and he eventually went over to France and uh, was arrested, and so he had to rely on the United States to try to get him out of jail. That's always a fun thing to talk about. But here we had Washington the conservative, and I think that's an important thing to note about Washington. In my McClanahan Academy class, 25 People Who Changed America, I have a lecture on George Washington in that class. It's actually free. If you want to go over there and you just want to look at that class and get that one lecture to see this is how I do the class, you can go listen to that one. Jefferson essentially made a statement at one point in his life that he thought if there was ever a schism in the United States, meaning a secession, that Washington would go north. Washington would support the north over the south. That Washington was more in line with the nationalists of the north than he was with the federalists, the real federalists, the decentralists of the south. And why is the key question. Michael Bolden wanted to know why. And I think the best brief treatment of this is Forrest McDonald's book, the presidency of George Washington. Now, Forrest McDonald was a Hamiltonian. Forrest McDonald, to the day he died, really loved Alexander Hamilton. He thought Hamilton was more important than Jefferson. He actually wrote the presidency of Thomas Jefferson, too. And in that book, at the beginning of the book, he says, um, I've got to be honest, this is a hard book for me to write because I really don't like Jefferson. McDonald really didn't like Jefferson. Now, McDonald was very conservative. McDonald was very much a decentralist, but he admired Hamilton. He thought Hamilton was brilliant, number one, and he loved Washington. And he was trying to figure out in the first part of this book why Washington would be much more interested and why some other members of the founding generation would be much more interested in a national government over something that's much more decentralized. And this is where you get, of course, the arguments of against the Articles of Confederation and and that type of thing, and why they were looking at these things. Um, and so I want to read a little bit of this chapter, this first chapter, the United States in 1789, because he's setting the stage for Washington coming into power in the presidency, Washington being the first president, what that actually meant, what Washington conceived of the idea, what he was doing there in the presidency in New York in 1789. And I find it fascinating. I mean, this is a good question. Why didn't Washington, I mean, he's a Virginian. Why wasn't he pro-Virginia? So McDonald writes this, Given such a tradition, the creation of the presidency was almost as great an achievement as the creation of the national government itself. Sensitivity on the matter had, in fact, been so marked that the members of the Constitutional Convention of 1787 spent more time debating how the executive branch would be constituted than they spent on any other subject. And in the end, 
They found it expedient or possible to sketch the presidency only in broad strokes, in contrast to the careful detail in which they specified the powers, duties, and makeup of the legislative branch. I marked it. I, I read this book for the first time in, I think, 1995, maybe. 1994, 1995. And I still have my notes in it from then. So, you know, nearly 30 years ago, I read this book for the first time. Um, it was published long before that, but that was when I first exposed to it. And so that concept of what the presidents could do and couldn't do, I mean, this is it was debated quite extensively in Philadelphia. And it was a it was a, a moment that stopped the convention in its tracks, practically, when it was proposed to have an executive, because the fear was an elected king. George Mason said it as much. He said as much. We don't want an elected king. So having Washington assume that role was very important because everyone trusted Washington. Here's a guy that gave up power willingly. At the end of the war, he resigned his commission, resigned all his commissions. Didn't want to be seen as someone who, is, who abused power, took power, and then abused it in one way or another. Didn't want that at all. So this was an important part of who Washington was. He says, if Americans could accustom themselves to the central idea that power could be exercised only according to the Constitution's rules of the game, if they could part with accustomed norms enough to permit the development of a viable executive authority, and if certain pressing problems could be resolved within the framework of these innovations, then they stood a fair chance of success in their radical attempt to combine liberty and popular government. And he says, the United States had one vital, if short-lived, advantage in this undertaking, for the Western world was at peace. This was an abnormal condition of the times. During the preceding 50 years, Britain, France, Spain, Prussia, and Austria had been at war with one another in various combinations almost exactly half the time, and they would be at war again within three years out of the four in the quarter century beginning in 1792. Moreover, when war resumed, it would become almost impossible for the United States to remain uninvolved, for dominance of America was one of the bones over which the hungry hounds of Europe contended. But in the meantime, for almost the entirety of Washington's first administration, the crucial form of years, there was peace. And so let me fast go forward in this book to something that McDonald says. And I, and I went long yesterday, 40 minutes on the review of LeBin's book, so I might have a little less time today to do these. But I want to go to something that he concludes with. He gets into the differences of the United States. When Washington came into office in 1789 in New York, and he assumes the role of the presidency. He spent there was no there was no powers. He couldn't do anything. Congress hadn't really done anything yet. The executive branch could only hold parties. Essentially, this is what he could do. He could have parties. He could receive his diplomatic side of it. He could receive ministers, consuls. He could do that kind of stuff. But he had no laws to execute. Nothing. He really had nothing to do. And so he spent some of the time just kind of twiddling his thumbs. Wouldn't that be refreshing? When, when, I read, when you read that in this book about George Washington, showing up and there he is with nothing to do. Wouldn't it be great if that was still the case of the presidency? The president shows up and he really has nothing to do because Congress constitutionally does so much. The president doesn't do a whole lot of anything constitutionally. So Washington shows up, doesn't have much going on. But see, Washington was concerned in 1789 about the United States in general. Everyone knew in 1789 you had a union comprised of 13 sovereignties to that point. 
that these states were suspicious of one another, even in New England. Rhode Island hadn't yet ratified the Constitution in 1789. They were still holding out. Neither had North Carolina. They were still holding out. You had uh, other states in New England that didn't really like each other that much. You had, you had states from the south to the north that didn't like each other that much. You had an area of the United States with about 4 million people in it, in 13 states. Now, to put that in perspective, in, uh, in 2022, the state in which I live has 4 million people. So in the entire United States, you had as many people as the state of Alabama. In, in, in 1790, you had that. So you have this vast wilderness with 4 million people in it, all kind of huddled along the coast. You've got hostile Indian tribes on the frontier. You've got the British and the French that could both be problematic. In the early days of the Washington administration, you get the French Revolution. Now, it hadn't turned nasty yet in 1789, but in short order it would. You've got the British still, I think, operating, clearly so, as that the American colonies weren't really that independent. They're still funding the American Indian tribes on the frontier and supplying arms to them. They haven't evacuated the forts they said they would evacuate. You've got tribes in the south and north that are not receptive to American expansion. You've got trade questions. You've got all this ideology swirling around. People don't know if the general government is going to be supported or not. You've got economic difficulties because the United States economy is in shambles following the war. And so Washington inherits all of this and has to somehow make this thing work as the person that everyone's looking to for the answer. Washington called it like going to his execution. And in some ways it was. Because no one could do this job except George Washington. And even then, he failed at it at times. It's why I included him in Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, because Washington made some mistakes as president in abusing power. Now, mostly at the behest of Hamilton, but certainly he made mistakes. And he did some things like signing the Bank of the United States into law that was bad long-term, or marching, essentially agreeing to march an army into western Pennsylvania to put down the Whiskey Rebellion, quote-unquote. But what he wanted to do more than anything else is create an American identity. He knew it didn't exist. He knew full well it didn't exist. No matter what James Wilson or John Marshall and these nationalists said, an American identity in 1789 did not exist, and he was well aware of it. So, Washington tries to go to work to create that. And that's essentially how Forrest MacDonald tells the tale. So the question is, why didn't Washington side with Jefferson or some of the other uh decentralist because Washington thought that was dangerous for the United States long term. Wasn't that he didn't he didn't believe that power should be he believed power should not be abused. He believed the central authority only had limited constitutional powers. He just thought that Hamilton made a better argument with the Bank of the United States and Hamilton badgered him finally into sending the troops into western Pennsylvania even though his attorney general and the Supreme Court chief justice both thought it was illegal at the time. So this is what McDonald says in the book about this particular situation. He says, quote, Viewed up close, then, the Americans were an extremely diverse, not especially attractive, and possibly ungovernable people. It was only when they were viewed in broad range, on the average, 
and in comparison with the world's other peoples, that their virtues and their promise to mankind became evident. So think about what he just said there. And he talks about uh, how the Southerners, Northerners were seen as you know bad Yankees and Southerners were seen as bad. In fact, let me read this about what he says about Northerners. He says, so the Yankees were a stereotype. They were puritanical, brittle, stern. They were greedy, stingy, shrewd. They were vulgar, mean, democratic. They had no comprehension of generosity, elegance, or taste. They drove sharp bargains, were too busy, talked too fast, and threw their noses, and built fences of stone as if in a man's days on earth were not numbered. This general view outside of New Englanders, this general outside view of New Englanders was not entirely accurate, though in fact the Yankees tended to live up to their reputation when they dealt with outsiders. So I love that description of Yankees. The Yankees were a stereotype. They were puritanical, brittle, stern. They were greedy, stingy, shrewd. They were vulgar, mean, democratic. Think about the modern Karen. That describes a modern Karen to a T. The general outside impression of Southerners in the South, on the other hand, was entirely inaccurate. Those Southerners, too, tried to live up to their image. Those early days of the Republic, the White South was a mixture of pretense, illusion, and ideal of generous and gregarious cavalier gentry, of great slave-owning planters, and of Republican aristocrats who stood above the caste, crass pursuit of wealth. At best, the first two pretensions accurately described no more than a tenth of the white adult males of the South, and the third suited almost none, though the pretense itself was rice-bread and common. What was equally important to the, the, the South was even more diverse from state to state than were the other parts of the Union. On one extreme was the raw frontier state of Georgia, containing rice planta plantation aristocrats like those of South Carolina, Yankee immigrants, and Scotch-Irish batch countrymen. But the overall quality of life in the state was very close to the barbarism that was attributed to all frontier communities. On the other extreme was South Carolina, where the low country planters were as decadently civilized as the nobility of ancient Egypt, and where uh, the upcountry was filled with rude, hard-drinking, politically disruptive Scotch-Irish cattle drovers. Virginia was still dominated by pseudo-cavaliers and culture Republican aristocrats whose disdain for the commercial life was exceeded in intensity only by the avidity with which they pursued wealth. But in the Piedmont south side, in the Blue Ridge foothills, in the valley, and in the trans-Allegheny region, of the dominant element was the Scots-Irish. As to Maryland and North Carolina, it is not a great exaggeration to assert that the one was a veritable Virginia infused with a conspiratorial style, and the manner of the of Restoration England, and that the other was a veritable Virginia watered down by a bumpkin style in the manner of the backcountry throughout America. So he's saying, look, Southerners were diverse. New England was, but you had these antagonistic regions, and Washington is trying to put all that together for the good of the nation. This is why Washington never subscribed to the decentralization, because he thought all this would be better served by putting it together. This is how he describes it. Washington, I'm uh, sorry, uh, McDonald says, if there was any genuine likelihood of the improvement of the lot of the common man, if, as Americans believed, civilization was retarded rather than preserved by artificial and inherited barriers between men, and if the Americans could succeed in their effort to live together as one nation, despite the diversity of its parts, then Washington was right, and the United States truly was the hope of the future. Washington believed that the United States offered the best hope for the future, that this unified United States with a stronger central government, not what we think of a strong central government today, 
but certainly a stronger central government was the best hope for the future. He said as much. His, the optimism was evident in his farewell address. He was cautioning against the things that he saw, which was, of course, factionalism, which was, of course, division between sections. He saw all of it in 1796. He saw it all. He saw it all in 1789 and 1788. Washington was concerned that this factionalism would destroy America. It would destroy what he had fought so long for in his mind for the American War for Independence. And he didn't want to see that go away. He didn't want the United States broken apart. But again, Jefferson said if there was a schism, he would go north. I think Washington was, um, he, he had, I mean, look, he, he loved Alexander Hamilton. There's no doubt. Washington loved Alexander Hamilton as a son. And I think that with that, uh, Washington would have preferred to be around Hamilton than Jefferson. I mean, Jefferson was his colleague. Jefferson was his friend to an extent. But Hamilton was his boy. And in that way, Jefferson always was going to side. I'm, I'm sorry, Washington was always going to side with Hamilton over Jefferson. He was always going to side with the Nationalists over the what he considered to be the provincial Virginians. That's why he encouraged Patrick Henry to uh, to take office as a Federalist. Right? I mean, this is what he wanted him to do. All right. So that hopefully answers Michael Bolden's question about George Washington. You can find good things Washington said, a lot of great things, but this is what he was thinking in the 1780s and 1790s and why he was suspicious of the decentralists because he thought it worked against the ultimate objective, which was a sec the security of the United States against foreign problems and for the future of the United States against disillusion, which he thought would just be simply picked off by foreign powers. So, hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then. <laughs>